This program was recorded shortly before the death of the writer Grace Paley, whose work it honors. This is The New Yorker Out Loud from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. This month, we'll hear Somewhere Else, a story by Grace Paley that was originally published in The New Yorker in 1978. At any rate, he ignored Joe and the interesting socialist question of decentralized neighborhood industry. Instead, he said, Mr. Lorenz, why did you choose to photograph that peasant? What, me, me, me? Somewhere Else was chosen from our archives by Nell Freudenberger, whose story, Lucky Girls, was published in the magazine in 2001. A collection of her short stories with the same title was published in 2005. Nell Freudenberger not only chose this month's story, she's here to talk about it, too. Hi, Nell. Hi. Grace Paley has published three books of short stories, and almost all of them are set in New York City, except for this one, half of which takes place in China. I know that you've written many times about Americans traveling abroad, and I wondered, is that what drew you to this story? Um, Well, it was partly that, and I was really excited to see that one of my favorite writers was writing about um, a place that, that I've been. But it was also just the circumstances of the trip that were really interesting to me. Um, in nineteen, I think that her trip, the trip that Grace Paley took, was in nineteen seventy-four. So she really, she did actually go to China at this point. She did go, and she went in a group that was sponsored by the Guardian newspaper. Her companions were mostly socialists, mostly writers and academics, including Barbara Ehrenreich. So in seventy-four, the Cultural Revolution was still going on. Mao was still alive. And um, the campaigns of the Cultural Revolution were still happening. So um, it's just sort of amazing to have been one of the first Western visitors after the country had been closed for 20 years. And do you know why Grace was chosen for this trip? Was there an application process or...? Um, I think there was. I mean, I think they were choosing people whose socialist credentials had already been established, and they would have been heavily guided. And you can see that in the story, that when they're led around by a political guidance counselor and then a series of sort of tourist guides, and what they what they hear and what they see is tightly controlled. Can you set up the, the basics of the story for our listeners? Sure. Basically, it's a story about taking pictures. The first part of the story takes place in China in the 70s. And then in the middle of the story, there's a sudden shift and um, the action moves somewhere else. Now let's listen to the story. Here's Barbara Rosenblatt reading Somewhere Else by Grace Paley. 22 Americans were touring China. I was among them. We took many photographs. We had learned how to say, hello, goodbye, may I take your photograph. Frequently, the people did not wish to be photographed. Now, why is that, we asked. We take pictures in order to remember the Chinese people better, to be able to tell our friends about them after supper and give slideshows in churches and schools later on. Truthfully, we do it with politics in mind, if not in total command. Mr. Wang, the political guidance counselor on the travel service, said it was because of Antonioni's film on China and his denigrating attraction to archaic charm. His middle-power chauvinism looked on China as the souffle of Europe, to rise and fall according to the nourishment beaten into it by American capital investment and avant-garde art. He said the high vigilance of the people would not allow us to imitate this filmmaker's disdain for technologies that visibly assert themselves in urban steel and all along the terraces of rice and soy and wheat. One day, in the hotel meeting room, he said, You do not love the Chinese people. Now, 
You shouldn't have said that. It made us stop listening, especially Ruth Larson, Anne Ryer, and me. We were, to a tourist, in love with the Chinese Revolution, Mao Zedong, and the Chinese people. Those who were affectionate did once in a while hug a guide or interpreter. Others hoped that before the tour ended, they'd be able to walk along a street in Shanghai or Canton, holding hands with a Chinese person of their own sex, just as the Chinese did, chatting politics, exchanging ideological news. Surreptitiously, we looked into family courtyards every now and then to see real life from which, though in love, we'd been excluded. When we began to listen to Mr. Wong again, he was accusing one of us of taking pictures without permission. Where? When? Where? Who? we asked. We hoped we were not about to suffer socialist injustice because we loved socialism. Right here in Tianjin, in front of the hotel, Mr. Wong said. Ah, we thought. It's possible. There were terrible temptations for photograph-taking right across the street from the hotel, in the beautiful small park. There, the young played ping-pong. The old, slowly, at 125th, did tai chi. Also, the middle-aged textile workers had left their sewing machines for a few days in order to participate in designing the cloth they fabricated. They stood around the rose garden drawing leaves and roses. One of us could have done that just snapped a picture, too excited to say, may I please take your photograph? Mr. Wong continued. The accused, he said, had photographed a lower-middle peasant lugging a two-wheel cart full of country produce into the city. A boy had been sleeping on top. Oh, what a picture. China, the heavy cart, the toiling man, the narrow street, once England Street huge buildings lined with first-class plumbing for the English Empire's waste, like the downtown Free West anywhere. In the foreground, the photographed man labored, probably bringing early spring vegetables to some distant neighborhood in order to carry back to his commune honey buckets of the city's stinking gold. This act, this photographing, had been reported by one vigilant Chinese worker incensed by Antonioni's betrayal. Mr. Wong pointed his political finger at our brilliant comrade Frederick J. Lorenz. You, he said, especially you, are not a friend. A general gasp and three nervous snickers. Immediately, Ruth Larson touched Fred's shoulder to show loyalty. Freddy, not Freddy! Joe Larson jumped up. He walked to the door. He put his hand on the knob. We had all assumed that Mr. Wong's guilty man would be Martin, a jolly friend to all revolutions, an old-time union organizer, history lover, passionate photographer. Before our tour ended, he had taken 4,387 pictures, although his camera had been broken for two days. It was not exactly broken. It had simply closed its eye, exhausted. Ruth, Anne, and I had discussed Freddy. Ruth thought he should have been spoken to long ago, but not for his photography. In this China, where all the grown-ups dressed in modest gray, blue, and green, Freddy wore very short, white, California shorts with a mustard-colored California BVD shirt, and above his bronze, blue-eyed face, 
golden tan California curly hair. She didn't think that was nice. Who are you, Ruth? The commissar of underwear? Anne had asked. At breakfast, Ruth had started to address him. Freddy! Then she'd thought, Oh, boy, there you go again. The typical analysis by the old, which is, Rough politics is okay if it leans on the arm of bourgeois appropriateness. So she'd said, You sure keep your suntan a long time, Freddy. Fred closed his eyes in order to think in solitude. We suffered a tour-wide two-minute fear. We waited for Fred's decision. He opened his eyes, then rose in high courtroom style to rebut. Mr. Wong made a little smile. He looked around at us all. His finger pointed once more. You, Mr. Lorenz, have been accused by still another worker of invading a noodle factory. Cries of, no, no, Christ, come on, he's kidding. Three young people who liked to see us older folks caught in political contradiction or treasonous bewilderment simply laughed. One of us, Dwayne Smith, had put his life savings into this trip. He'd studied Chinese for six years in night school in order to come one day to this place and be understood by the Chinese people in Tiananmen Square. He didn't laugh. He whispered, This is serious. What if they throw us out? Ruth said, Never. Invading what? said Fred. Joe, he called out. He said, Oh, God, and sat down. What was China talking about? Joe Larson chewed sugarless gum very hard. He walked around and around in a little circle of annoyance near the door. Then he moved directly across the room to look at Mr. Wong. He believed in doing that. His politics was based on staring truthfully into the cruel eye of power. Mr. Wong, he said, you know, in Peking I visited a street noodle factory too, one not far from the hotel. Joe said he wanted to be absolutely clear. It was his fault that he and Fred had stopped at the noodle shop in the city of Tianjin. He was, when not in China, writing a novel, a utopia, a speculative fiction in which the self-reliant, small, necessary technology of noodle-making was one short chapter. He had considered it a good omen to have passed this street factory and to have been invited to observe all the soft-hanging noodles and in the bins the stiff-dried noodles. He admired the manageable machine that shaped, cut, and extruded them. Why is he admitting all that? Dwayne Smith said. He'll get us thrown out. Never, said Ruth. The others had hoped for more interesting admissions. Joe often took long walks when the rest of us were visiting points of cultural interest. At supper, he would tell us how he drank tea with old men, a condition he liked to consider himself a member of. He had taken a ferry ride with noisy Chinese families to the other side of the river. There, in an outlying district, two old people, guardians of the street, had shown him how to dispose of a banana peel. Some of our people with poor character structures were jealous of his adventures. They'd been a little ashamed of their timidity when he spoke. But now that he was being spoken to, they were proud of their group discipline. Mr. Wong, Joe said, Fred accompanied me. He was not alone. It was my idea, 
I'm crazy about your street noodle factories. Lane factories, I believe you call them. Mr. Wong looked at Joe. Then he pretended Joe wasn't there and never had been. Mr. Wong did not like to be interfered with right in the middle of a political correction. Also, he did not seem to want to accuse two people at once. Why? Perhaps accusing one person was sharper, required only one finger and one harsh cry. At any rate, he ignored Joe and the interesting socialist question of decentralized neighborhood industry. Instead, he said, Mr. Lorenz, why did you choose to photograph that peasant? What, me, me, me? Fred said me so many times because he was, and is, one of our foremost movement lawyers. He's accustomed to approbation from his peers and shyness from petitioners. He can be depended upon to take the most hopeless case and to construct, out of his legal education and political experience, hope, along with a furious protesting constituency. So once more he cried, Me? Oh, take my film, take it, take the camera, you'll see, there's nothing. Take it, I don't even like to take pictures, I hate the lousy thing. He tried to jerk the camera off his neck. He failed. That's true, Mr. Wong, said Martin, trying out a reasonable tone, as one comrade should speak to another. My camera was broken last week, and he gave me his. It didn't bother him at all. We are not interested, said Mr. Wong. You will be here twelve more days. We wanted you to know that the Chinese people are vigilant. He made the tiniest bow turned, and left. Some of us gathered around Fred. Others gathered as far from Fred as possible. Later that evening, we were invited to share our folk heritage with the Tianjin Women's Federation. We sang, I've Been Working on the Railroad. The next afternoon, Ruth talked to Ho, one of our guides. We all liked him because he rolled his pants up to the knee when it was hot. She said, you know, Fred's one of our great poor people's lawyers. But you guys aren't into law so much, are you? said Anne. She has always been a little sarcastic. You deserve this, I said to Ho. Who asked you to invite Antonioni, the star of the declining West? I bet lots of less-known people were dying to make the film. Let's get off his back, said Martin, composing us nicely in his lens, snapping a group photograph. Dwayne Smith said, please, leave him alone. Ho had become accustomed to our harassment. He folded his trouser legs one more lap above the knee. But it's right, is it not, he said. You must ask the people first. Do they wish to be photographed? Yes, I said, but that's not the point, and you know it, Ho. And tomorrow, when you visit the countryside and the fisheries, you will inquire before you take a picture of the poor or lower-middle peasant. Sure, said Anne. You will say, even if it is only a child, may I take your photograph? Okay, okay, we said. Relax. We heard you the first 500 times. About three months later, Martin invited us to a China reunion at his house, full of food, slides, insights, and commentary. Twelve people came. Anne had flown to Portugal that very morning. 
Dwayne Smith had written from California to say naturally he couldn't make it, but would Martin lend his fishery slides for a couple of weeks and airmail them at once, special delivery certified. Fred was sure he'd see us. He was due in New York for a week of conferences. The three young people were present, looking lovely. They were friendly. Two were still solemn with hard new politics, but one who had mocked us with sneers and gloom asked, would we please begin the evening by holding hands and singing, listen, listen, listen to my heart's song, I'll never forget you, I'll never forsake you. I said, why not? Let's see what happens. Ruth said, my God, what's come over you? Anyway, where's Joe? Someone said we should start either eating or looking. Joe was clearly impossible. He had been undisciplined in two countries. The younger people with the ache of youth were eating all the cheese. Joe arrived 40 minutes late, starved, sweaty. I have to tell you what happened, he said. You know that nice park in the South Bronx, the one I like, where I've been working on and off this summer? Well, I finished up just a couple of hours ago. The boys I work with had already gone home. We had a great party, and I stuffed the camera and Juan's films of the fiesta into a musette bag. I knew I was going to see all of you, so I sort of sauntered my way back to the subway, imagining our conversations and, well, excited. You know I get excited. Those lousy streets. I've been in the neighborhood all these weeks with the summer work kids, not just the park, but the lots, building some playgrounds and the kind of giant climber I showed you, Marty, remember? And filming, getting the kids to see. Not that anyone sees. Maybe just to keep a record. Sometimes we're raising a couple of beams, and suddenly a building across the street begins to smolder. Smoke, big white smoke, then flames out of every window. The Bronx kids usually keep going, but the other boys, they're Puerto Rican too. They come with me from the Lower East Side, and one boy from Brooklyn. They're amazed. They can't believe a block tougher than their own. After the fire engines, after the fire, when everything cools off, they like to see the junkies toss brass pipes, real old brass out of the windows. Some of those houses were nice tenements once. I know, said Ruth. I lived in one. Me too, said Martin. That's right. We have some film if you ever want to see. The block is burning down on one side of the street, and the kids are trying to build something on the other. Anyway, it's such a great day. I just walked along, kind of dreaming. I passed a factory. There was a sign, Empleados Necessitados. Took a couple of shots. Women came out of the factory. It was about 5.30, I guess. They waved. I took some pictures. They waved some more. Now, you have to understand that on any street there, among a couple dozen abandoned buildings, there's always one or two that look nearly intact. Usually men and boys sit around the front of a building like that. That's what I saw, just a block or two after the factory. I hadn't planned on filming, but we did need a couple of good long background shots. The kids either do that wild back-and-forth panning or they shoot for the eyeball. So I began this slow pan across the top floor, black windows and charred roofs. And as the camera slowly took it all in, I could see out of the corner of my eye a group of guys on one of the stoops. 
They were a distance away, playing a guitar, leaning on a wall, a mattress, the steps, with a couple of transistors. I had an awful, uncomfortable feeling about including them in the long pan. In fact, I can't remember. Did I? Or did I stop short? I may have wanted to include them because I hate exposés, you know. It could have been right, correct, to show that energy those guys sometimes have in the early evening, not just the nodding-out residents of the famous South Bronx. Still, I know that any non-Hispanic white man with a camera looks like a narc, so I put the camera away. Well, what did I do then? I guess I continued my walk toward the subway, a little quickly, maybe. I knew I'd better move. About ten seconds after I began to feel safe, I heard a running thud. A human form flew past me, ripping the musette bag off my shoulder. He kept going, swerved, cut across an empty lot to the next street. He was so fast and so violent, but he just thrust his arm through the shoulder strap, moving it from my shoulder to his. Hadn't hurt me at all. A craftsman. But I was shook up. I stood still. My heart was jumping. I watched him. I turned. Those guys down the block were all laughing. We were the only people on that long, burned-out block. What could I do? I started to resume my lifelong trip to the subway. But I'll tell you, I couldn't stand for it to end that way. For some reason, I wanted them to know who I was. Also, I didn't want to become scared of walking around that neighborhood. I worked there, damn it. I don't know if those are the real reasons. Whatever, I had to talk to them. So I walked back and went up to them. They laughed. I said, listen, I know it probably wasn't so great to have shot that film over your heads like that, but I don't think I included you. I told them they probably knew me. I was working a couple of blocks away, and at least a couple of them must have been over there. I said, the film I just shot was not so important. But the other stuff had been taken by the youth corps kids, and they'd feel bad. The fellow on the top step said, That's one sad story, old man. I looked up. On the fire escape above us, the guy who'd snatched the musette bag was unraveling the film right out of the camera, hopping around, dancing, laughing. That's okay, I said, like some kind of jerk. I don't really care, but I would like the other film. Can't do it, the guy says. I kept pushing. It isn't mine. It's the kids on 141st Street. Then I just stood there looking at them. I didn't move. Couldn't. I must have looked so dumb, or maybe they recognized me. Anyway, they had a small, speedy Spanish conference, and the leader, top step man, hollered up, Paco, bring it down. No, no, Paco says. He was draping the exposed film in and out of the fire escape bars. Bring it down, top step said. Paco looked absolutely miserable, but he handed the bag over. He was disgusted. I told them thanks. They said, that's okay, man. Then I did something strange. Why? I don't know. I said, it's true I need the film. But here, you take the camera. No, no, said the leader. Take it, I said. No, no, you crazy man. Listen, take it. Use it. We'll come over and help you out. You can make a movie. Don't want it, you deaf.
No, no. I said, you've got to take it. I'll be on the 143rd Street lot. I shoved the camera into their hands. I walked away fast. And here I am. That's all there is. What do you think? What in the world, said Ruth. Forget the world, said Joe. I'm sorry I told you the story. I don't know why I did. I must be nuts. Martin said, I know why you told the story. You wanted to show that just because a person owns a camera, they do not own the whole world, and you understand it. That's what you think, said Joe. I think I told it to you because it just happened. Don't make a big Marxist deal about it. Okay, don't get upset, said Martin. He began to fuss with the projector. Now let's be calm, he said. Get your chairs, everybody. Ruthie, put the lights out. Wait till you see the color, folks. Number one, here it comes. That old man, he's holding that grandchild in a pink and orange sweater. Where was that? Oh, Christ, said Joe. Can't you remember anything? It was in a courtyard in a village near Nanking. That was Barbara Rosenblatt reading Grace Paley's story, Somewhere Else, which is in her collected stories published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com actionplan Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-slash-dealer-affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Now, in, in the story, Paley seems to be affectionately making fun of a certain kind of do-good political fervor that was reasonably common at the time and that doesn't exist in that form now. Does that, does that make the story feel dated at all to you? Well, I think the amazing thing about the story is that it still operates just the way it would have in 1978 when it was published. And I think that's because her goals 
as a writer of fiction are different than they would have been. I mean, it's, it's really hard for a reporter to write about a trip like this and not to feel in retrospect that they um, they missed the point. And I know that um, Barbara Ehrenreich has been criticized for what she wrote about this trip because, of course, going in 1974, they would have not known what had been going on during the Cultural Revolution. They would have only had hints of what had been happening in the 50s in China. I think the way that Grace Paley focused on how we fail to understand, um, how we fail to communicate is what makes this story so great and and still timely. She's quite ironic about it. <laughs> she's really funny. I mean, she, she makes fun of her characters, um, but she does it in a way that's totally without scorn, even when they're being sort of foolish, including the first-person narrator. She talks about how... Um, She's waiting for the political guidance counselor to give his criticism of them. And she talks about how she hoped that they were not going to suffer a socialist injustice because we loved socialism. <laughs> of course, there's a little bit of self-mocking right. in yeah, that. Yeah. In the story, um, Paley talks about a documentary that Antonioni made in China, which I think was made in 1972 for Italian state TV. And at the time, you know, he was invited in by the Chinese government and then of course, they absolutely hated what he did and sort of right. called on all the Chinese people right. to denounce it, even though none of them had ever actually seen it. Have you, have you seen that movie? I haven't seen it. Um, I know that at that time, there would have been banners in the streets in Beijing denouncing Antonioni, and um, the foreigners who visited would have been sort of baffled by that. <laughs> but Grace Paley has this great bit where she has the narrator say to her guide, well, you know, um, it's your fault. You could have invited any number of lesser filmmakers or younger filmmakers who would have been dying to make this film, but you guys went for sort of the big gun. The implication is you couldn't control what he was going to do. You might have chosen somebody younger and more pliable. And it's so great because Grace Paley was also invited, and this is the story that came out of it. I'm sure the political <laughs> guidance counselor wouldn't have approved of this story either. <laughs> I'm sure he didn't. Um, when you when you talked to Grace Paley, I, you interviewed her a few years ago. When you talked to her, did she talk at all about how she got on this trip or she she was vague about um, the specifics of when the trip took place or how she got on it, but she talked about the structure of the story, which was what the big thing that I was curious about. Did she always know when she started writing that there was going to be the second section of the story that took place in New York? And she said that she didn't know, but that what she taught her students when she taught writing was that you couldn't have just one story for a story to work. You had to have two stories. And so the t part that takes place in the Bronx is the second story. Both involve people taking pictures of people who don't want to have pictures taken of them. Right. How do these two halves connect for you? I think at first you're sort of baffled by the transition. And then Joe Larson, who was one of the tourists in the group, says that he... He, he does this work in the Bronx, and he also films the kids doing the work because he's trying to get them to see, not that anybody actually sees. And then you realize that this is, this is the second story that engages with the first story and makes the conflict. Um, I think that when you, when you write a story that takes place in another country, the conf and it's basically about a tourist, the conflict can't come from that country because as a tourist, you don't engage deeply enough to have the kind of experience that you can write a story about. You kind of have to bring your conflict along from home. And the conflict for, for Joe is? Is that he um, he wants to make a record. He thinks he wants to make a record. He's not sure about his motivations. And he gets his camera stolen. And then there's this great moment where he's standing in front of the stoop negotiating with these guys who've stolen it from him begging them to take his camera, which he's just gone to retrieve. And why does he do that? 
there's an interpretation in the story and Joe says to the guy who right. gives it, don't yeah. make this big Marxist deal about it. But I think that it, I think it's a basically a story about the way that experience resists explanation. If you think about the story, there are two photos that you remember from it. And the first is the photo they weren't supposed to take of the peasant lugging a cart of vegetables into the city. Uh, and the second one is the film that Joe Larson takes that has the, the youth corps kids on one side of the street in the Bronx building a playground and the block burning on the other side. Both those are great photos, and they're great mm -hmm. photos because they're cliches. They, you look at it, and you immediately know what the point of the photo is. What Grace Paley gives us is something that's impossible to photograph. This guy begging other guys to take a camera that they've just stolen from him. It's inexplicable, and it says a lot more about why we take pictures than those first two do. Mm -hmm. There's also a sort of hopelessness because that, that these kids in the Bronx have no idea what he wants from them. They don't want the camera. They maybe they wanted to sell it, right. but they don't want to actually. They don't want to record anything. their experience, which is what he wants them to yeah. do. Paley is obviously a very political writer, a very political person. At the same time, her stories are are incredibly funny a lot of the time, and and I wonder how you feel those two strains work together in her work. Well, I think I was first when I first came to Grace Paley's stories. I was a little bit intimidated by the politics because they were so different from um, not only what I had experienced, but just my generation's type of politics is really different from the politics she writes about in the '60s and '70s. But I asked her about that, and she said, "Well, you know, it came from my family. This is the culture of my family. Of course, we were going to be involved. We were going to be political, and we were going to be involved in this way." And I think that the humor in her stories really comes from her childhood listening to Russian and Yiddish and English at the same time. And she always says that she has two ears. She has one ear for literature and one for home. And that she started out as a poet, but when she became a fiction writer, it was the home ear that she was listening to as much as the literary ear. And I think that's where all of her jokes come from. I mean, some of them are so subtle. There's this. There's a sentence in this story where she says, the young people with the ache of youth were eating all the cheese. And that's just, I mean, that's just a hilarious sentence, but in a totally quiet way. Yeah. Also, she's writing at a time, I suppose, when the youth of America was almost entirely politically motivated in a way that the youth of 2007 right. are not necessarily. Right. Um, or at least in a have, really different way. Yeah. We don't have those same forces racing through the culture right now. Right. Um, one of the things I always think about when I read Grace Paley is just her amazing talent for compression, how she can give you a very short sentence. And none of the details are there, but they're all implied and you pick them up. And as a writer yourself, I just wonder how difficult that is to do. Well, I think that's impossible to do unless you're Grace Bailey. I mean, I think I think she's one of those writers who has a particular talent. Um, you can admire and love it, but you you can't necessarily learn from it as a fiction writer, because at least for me, I think that's because she's really a poet to start out with. She identifies herself as a poet first, even though she's so much more famous for her short stories. And she's always been inspired more by poets than by fiction writers. And so those, those transitions between her sentences that sometimes don't make sense until you've read them five or six or 10 or 20 times, that's because she's writing like a poet, not like a novelist. Thank you so much, Nell. Thanks so much. Nell Freudenberger is the author of a novel called The Dissident, which is coming out in paperback this month. You can read her story, Lucky Girls, on our website, newyorker.com. To subscribe to this and other free New Yorker podcasts, please visit the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or audible.com. You've been listening to The New Yorker Out Loud from The New Yorker magazine. 
I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>